Hi guys, before we get started with this week's episode, we just have a little bit of news for you. Oh yes. We do. The news is that we now have a dedicated section on the official Manchester United app just for our podcast. Mazad Garnet, loving it? Yes, loving it. We know what you're thinking. Why should I move my favourite podcast app all the way over to a new app? Well, two reasons. Reason one is that you will get the podcast a whole 24 hours earlier. I think that's a really good reason. That's 24 hours earlier than everywhere else. And you can be first in line to hear every new episode. Yeah, and reason number two is it allows us to bring you so much more than just the episode. So if we talk about goals, you'll be able to see the goals within the app and you'll also see associated articles and something a lot of people have requested. You'll be able to watch more episodes of the podcast all in one place which to me seems sensational Mm -hmm. but if you're not convinced and want to stay where you are that's fine too we'll still bring you our pods right here every week as usual right here right now but also if you're on the app you won't have to sit through us telling you all this every time that's good isn't it yeah because this is going to get repeated if you're listening on something else but not on the app Uh, anyway that's it the official Manchester United app now has a podcast section loads going on in there check it out now on with this episode download the app United score, they always score. Cleared, Gates with a shot, Cherry Name on the trophy. Teddy Sheringham with 30 seconds of added time play has equalised for Manchester United. They are still in the European Cup. Is this their moment? Beckham into Sheringham and Solskjaer has won it. Manchester United have reached the promised land. And welcome to another episode of the United Podcast. This is, I should caveat, a very special episode because this is the very first time we've sat down with a guest and that guest has not played for Manchester United, they've not worked for Manchester United, they've not been a manager of Manchester United, but don't worry, everything else is normal. I am joined by... Maze is here. Yeah, correct, and... Helen's here. <laughs> it just felt like I had to go down that route because yeah. that's how Maisie started. Should we do our intros like that in the, in no, the future? No, never again, please. Cool. Okay. Be different. How are you all feeling about Clive? Iconic voice yeah. is what springs to Wag mind. and he is a legend. I think it's going to be weird looking at him and listening to him talk because usually you listen to him and you yeah, never see no, him. Yeah, I I was thinking, should I do this episode with my eyes closed? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that feels appropriate. <laughs> I think he just has one of those voices that is made for football. I know it sounds stupid, but he's just got a great voice for football. And as you can hear the alarm going off there, that's, I don't know what that is, but yeah, we are in a hotel in Odsall. About five minute walk from Old Trafford, mm-hmm. and uh, there's an alarm going off. Yeah. Do you think it's his voice that is great, or do you think because he's talked over great so many, moments. That's yeah, exactly great moments? What I was going to say, Sam. We then love his voice. No, I think uh, no. I think he's just uh, uh, an iconic figure in the world of commentary. Mm-hmm. Great voice. How do we feel about having a guest on that isn't immediately associated to the club? Do I think know? he is associated. Particularly with the 99. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you know how I feel about it? I no. feel like, I'll tell you then. <laughs> Thanks. I feel like we're always in the presence of truly great footballers, managers, but probably we do take it a little bit for granted sometimes. But I would say for this one, I feel a little bit more excited. Does oh, that yeah? make any sense? Helen, because I'm sort a of lot used of the stuff you say doesn't no, make, doesn't sense. make sense. Not for me, Clive. I'm used to meeting footballers yeah. and talking to footballers, yeah, sure. managers. But this is this is the other side of it. Yeah, it's the yeah. other side, and because he's part of a moment of history in our club. Yeah, 
it just feels so iconic to have him here. Mm-hmm. Exciting. Well, let's get him on then, shall we? It's Clive Tilsley. So here we are then. You might be able to hear behind us in the distant background the sort of muttering voices and the clearing of plates. Breakfast is being eaten down below us. We are sat in the hotel that Clive stayed in last night. It is the morning after that fantastic victory. Uh, that's my perspective of it anyway, over Atalanta. I'm sure everybody has their own view. Clive, good morning. How are you? Um, absolutely fine, despite the hotel breakfast. Yeah, how, was, um, how was your room? Was it nice? It's none of your business. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> there are certain things I'm not prepared to talk about. It's going to be, one, it's going to be one of those podcasts. How much uh, did you enjoy the game yesterday? Is that, are those the kind of games that that make you feel, I guess, privileged to be at them and to, to talk about them? Absolutely. Every emotion was was on show. Um, you're never quite sure what order they're coming in, but we visited them all at, at some stage. And that's, you know, that's kind of what we've been missing. Um that that, that theatre of, of live sport and the way that it affects hugely talented, hugely paid, uh, hugely professional athletes. I mean, Dave, David will know the feeling better than the three of us put together of how you can feel empowered one moment doing what you've always wanted to do, playing football you know, for Manchester United, and then something happens in a match and suddenly you can't put one foot in the other, all your energy's gone. It's, it's emotion, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, Clive, you've recently written a book. Mm. Congratulations on that. How was that experience for oh, you? I, I, love, I love writing. Uh, it was during the first lockdown, so there was nothing um, better to do. I'd been asked to do something autobiographical. I'd been resisting that because most of my story isn't interesting enough and the bits that are interesting enough I don't want to discuss with anybody particularly with my first wife um, and um, uh, I wanted to do a book if you like that was a little different from the, than any sort of standard um, broadcast autobiography and um, that that lockdown period gave me the, the license to do that to sort of draw on uh, my experiences and particularly the people that I've met and and got close to, and what I've learned about life from them, really, as well as um, about football. So each chapter in the book has got the heading of somebody that you'll probably be familiar with. There's a, a Fergie chapter, just like there's a Kenny chapter and a Cluffy chapter and, and a Gareth chapter. But I've, what I've tried to do is not tell stories, if you like, about each of those people, but through my experiences and through some of the stories what I've learned about what it's like to be a professional sports person to, for, for your livelihood to depend upon the break of the ball or the performance of a teammate. And um, it, I, I, I've talked a little bit about communication too, because that's my business. It's not so much commentating or broadcasting. I think we're in a mass communication business and I happen to think mass communication has never been uh, more important and I think the the people that I learned the most from about my job started with the basic questions what you, you know who you're trying to talk to and what you're trying to tell them and really what we do as commentators is we get the privilege to know people like David to draw on their experiences experiences I will never have because I've never crossed that white line and then almost to come back and try to tell the rest of the people who will never cross the white line all about it and that's 
You know, there's a famous speech by Roosevelt, which um, is the inspiration for Squid Game, um, which is about the man in the arena, the man who crosses the white, the man or woman who crosses the white line where most of us will never go. And, um, you know, that's why we're so, we don't like David, but we're, we're fascinated by people <laughs> like that because they've been where we will never go. Mm-hmm. I like how you've so quickly worked out the tone of this podcast when it comes to amazing. <laughs> I do get my fair share of grief and all that. I do. But I mean, I you must have, you know, there must have been a times when you were a fan, whether you weren't sure whether you were going to be a professional footballer or not, where you looked at professional footballers and thought, I can do that. I want to do that. Do you know what, Clive? I never thought, and this might sound pig-headed or whatever it is, but I never thought I could do anything other than play football. Okay. That's because I was just driven to, you know, people going about having natural talent but you've got to work so much harder at it and you've got to put so much dedication into it and I did that and you know I've got the rewards from it playing for Manchester United is there's nothing better yeah. I mean you must have played with fif- guys with 14 15 years of age who were just better than you yeah, but yeah who, ne- who didn't make it absolutely absolutely and they went on to when I look at them now and I speak to them now they will all say I was better than you at school, but you didn't have the dedication. You, you know, you, their distractions, whether it was women, you know, going to the pub, anything else like that. I cut all that out, and I just, you know, I had just one focus, and that was football. And that's the fascination, really, in the book, if you like. That's what I try to explore. I explore communication, um, which will be of interest to a certain number of people, but really, for for the vast majority of the people who read it. I'm trying to tell them what is different about the people that I've been privileged enough to meet and have the confidence of and be around, see if you like off mic, about what it is that makes them different from anybody else that I've ever met and therefore has made them successful sportsmen and women. People that you've had a very close relationship with over the years, legends of sport, and it's very different now, isn't it, for people coming into the media? Uh, how, how much do you find that nowadays? Yeah, I think the, the biggest change in my time in broadcasting, my whatever it is, 157 years in broadcasting, <laughs> is the breakdown in trust between football mm-hmm. and its media. And um, I think both sides are equally to blame. And I think there are certain sort of circumstantial aspects, which is just the, the changing nature of media. Um, once upon a time, and, you know, David would come out of a, a football ground and he, on his way to the to the coach after the game, they just got beat 2-0. You don't want to see another soul on earth. Mm. And there's people thrusting autograph books in front of you. And he probably managed to scribble about six David Mays and get on the coach and go and sulk at the back. Now it's selfies and will you say hello to so-and-so? They're getting married tomorrow and, and it's, it's, it's almost, you know, can I, can I come home with you and be with you for the next 24 hours? The, the, the amount of access that this has opened up has just made us greedy for more and more and it's just made the football people and the sports people and the movie people more and more reticent to even take that step. If, you know, you, you, you need to find, is, is there an underground tunnel I can get to the coach? I just, it, it's, it, it, I mean, it, even in my sort of G-list celebrity level, I, you're almost fearful of coming face-to-face with your public because that public is, it's wonderful. It's what, it, it's what puts this white shirt on my back. Um, and, and 90% of the feedback I get, even if it's criticism, is useful. But the other 10% is slightly frightening. It's, um, 
and it it it's sort of it, not in in lots of different ways, but just in the way that just a, a single sentence that you might say to somebody can be misinterpreted, mm. amplified, misreported, and end your career. You know, careers we're in such a judgmental um, day and age that as it's weird to be somebody who who earns a living by speaking and is actually frightened to say a lot of the things that are on my mind. Don't know how we have lasted this long, to be honest, whenever you no, say it like that. Yeah. <laughs> the good thing is we can edit it, your life. <laughs> we are nearly 100 episodes in, past players, current players, past managers. You're our first non-player or manager to be on our podcast. Well, Which is a real I, privilege for us. I, I, and I was nowhere near ever being a player. I was one of the first questions. Were you really good? Was, no, no, totally. I actually went to a rugby school. Um, and I learned my first great lesson about team sport um, because I played school rugby to a much higher level than either I was good enough to or even wanted to. I was the biggest was that ever played for North Lancashire under 15s. I could kick goals. They wanted me on the field because I could kick goals. If it had been American football, I would have been the special teams guy who just came on when a touchdown was scored. But because you can't do that in rugby, they virtually do. There are now about 155 substitutions out there in a rugby match. Of course, there were none back in those school days. So they had to sort of protect me on the field. The other 14 guys had to look after me because I could win the game. But every tackle I made in my schoolboy rugby career was a major event in my life <laughs> every goal that I kept from the touchline it was just yeah I can do that <laughs> and that's that's how team sport works isn't yeah, absolutely. it absolutely yeah so I mean, rugby school but football at heart for you oh yeah I came here I mean funny enough we used to park very very close to when I say we my dad and I used to park um on, on a but this is Orsall is it we're talking about here yeah, yeah. so the, the, the there was a lot of rough ground on in this area where they used to have match day car park. So I think there are still one or two mm-hmm. I've parked down here in recent years. Um, and then walk across the swing bridge. And um, I mean, this is, um, <clears throat> I was five when he took me. I, I'm from, born in Radcliffe, um, grew up in Bury, uh, grew up next to the Bury football manager. I came home from the nursing home as it was in the car of the wife of the Bury football manager at the time. We lived in a semi-detached house, semi-detached to Dave Russell, who was the manager of Bury. And we could pretty much walk to Gig Lane from where, um, from where I came home from, you know, in the first, my first day on the planet. And I should have really have been a Bury fan, but my dad was a big United fan. So he brought me from about the age of five, used to go with him and main what, stand what paddock. What Clive? Uh, 18. <laughs> uh, we're talking about, uh, I was born in 54. So, I was starting to come regularly when, when Besslow and Charlton came mm-hmm. into the team together. Um, when the title was won in 67, um, we went onto the pitch at the end of the final game. I mean, we were, we were the 38,000th person to get. We didn't storm the pitch, but everybody <laughs> else had gone on. So my dad led me on to Old Trafford. Around about that time, sort of 15, 16, uh, we start to split up. And uh, he'd give me a couple of bob for um, a pie and some pop, which I usually spend on 10 embassy. And um, I'd go on the Stretford end. And um, uh, I funny enough, right, the, the very opening of the book is about how for a few hours every afternoon, I was a kid from the Withenshaw estate. I wasn't. I, it, was, it was a bit like that 
pulp song, you know, common people. I kind of wanted to be, I kind of wanted to be a hard kid from from, from the Withenshaw estate, but I wasn't. I was a grammar school boy, you know, <laughs> um, it was just about to get 10 O levels or something. Um, but that was kind of how I lived. And then I get loads of polo mints to suck it so that my dad couldn't smell the cigarettes on my breath. And I had to get rid of all the cigarettes during the course of the game. So I made friends on the Stratford Empire handing out free cigarettes to everybody. Um, saw very little of the game. Dennis was my hero. And, I mean, if he scored at the Stratford End, I'd just catch a sort of subliminal glimpse of him about 10 seconds after he'd scored and he'd still be stood there with one finger pointing at the heavens. And, and as everybody cascaded forward, I'd get a little look at him, looking at me, looking back at you. But that was where I watched. And then I suppose... I got this bug about wanting to be a commentator. I was never going to be a player. And my dad and I would always meet back at the car just about five o'clock in time for what was then the Radio 2 sports report. Bill Bothwell was very yeah. often um, the match report at Old Trafford. And it kind of struck me as we were driving home that I hadn't seen much of this bloody game, really, you know, that he was talking about. Oh, really? Oh, Canelli crossed and quicksaw? I didn't know that. <laughs> uh, so... I actually started then to go a bit earlier and there were some seats behind the Stratford end then where you could actually see the game from and, he, and I had enough money from my pop money to get uh, to get on there if you queued. And then, yeah, slowly I, I gravitated, I suppose, when I went to, I went away to boarding school and came at weekends to games and then even uni um, and I'd go in the, what is now the away end, I think it was called the United Paddock up in the corner between the main stand and the scoreboard end. So, yeah, and and... In, I mean, if you'd ever told me that I would ever have a feeling for any other football club, I mean, I was on the Kipax, you know, at a, at a, obviously it was split in two. I can remember the Samuel McElroy's debut as if it was yesterday, just just the occasion and being there and the City fans were just there. And, it, you know, they were pretty tough days. I mean, you know, I, I saw a few bricks go through a few windows on my travels. I used to go on the football specials from... Victoria away with um, United and um, hooligan then. Well, I, I was the. I, I actually write in the book. There's a very famous war poet called Wilfred Owen, who wrote these wonderful poems about the World War One, and I, I was him. I had this wonderful instinct that as soon as the the, the first sound of um, brick on breaking glass, and I, I my self preservation took over, and I sort of took a step back and became the reporter of, <laughs> of what was happening. I knew all the songs and I, I had all the menace. I had the tartan scarf tied around my wrist and everything, but I've never been in a fight in my life, David. Never, ever been in a fight in my life and I wasn't ever going near one. But the weirdest thing was that, you know, having been this home and away United fan, uh, I got a job in radio, my dream job, straight from uni, which was 1975, and uh, I was the same age as the players that I was covering in Nottingham. I was covering Forest home and away, travelling with the players on the coach b uh, back then. And um, yeah, Martin O'Neill, John Robertson became my best pals. And, and, you know, those two I know to this day. And suddenly I was commentating my mates and the United thing kind of went away as, quick, mm. as strong as it was. It just got diluted by the fact that I was in now inside track. And um, I don't know, it must be a strange feeling traveling. I mean, you didn't have a million clubs, but transferring your affections from one club to another, playing against United, you know. Yeah. I, oh, well, when I was a Blackburn, I hated United, obviously. Yeah. You know, there was, there was a team I always obviously respected, looked up to, but 
the first one on the team sheet or the first on the fixture list you'd look for would be Manchester United. Yeah. And playing at Old Trafford was always a dream and as a as a Blackburn player, but also then to play at Old Trafford as an actual Manchester United player. It's like, wow. Wow. Clive, I've got to ask. Sat here now, having had the career you've had and you've you've been at Still endless, yeah. of course that's what I mean, but you've been you've been at so many football games, you've watched so many teams regularly. Having had that introduction to football of being on the Stratford End and watching Best Lauren Charlton, how do you do you find do you still favour United? Has it gone completely? Do you you were at Old Trafford last night? Does that does that is there any semblance of that that love you used to have, or is it just just no. say Escaped. yes purely for our podcast? I, I'm I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I wish I could. I wish I could give the in-house answer, but the answer is no. I find uh, that so strange. It, it's it, it's weird. Uh, I, do you know? I my first job in TV was at Granada Television, and. Um, uh, it, it was very strange because I was working doing reports for kickoff previews mainly. Yeah. So I was traveling around all the Northwest football grounds. So I need to have contacts at all the Northwest clubs. And I'd come from local radio, Merseyside, and Manchester City was full of ex-Everton players and, and, and the manager, uh, you know, Howard Kendall was there. And um, I just had much, much better contacts at City. Yeah. Uh, and I was welcomed in at City. To the point where my first ever TV commentary was Manchester City 5, Manchester United 1 in 1989. And I knew those City kids. That there, there was that, that kids team that was coming through, Brightwell and uh, Lake and Bish and all those guys. And I, 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 honestly, I can't say that I was happy that City had won, but I was happy for Mel Machin, who was really, really good to me. And, you know, Fergie was difficult then. <laughs> I didn't have any kind of relationship with him. So... Yeah, I, it just went. It, it went completely because because I was commentating on my mates. Yeah, I suppose because as we'd alluded to before, your job has changed over the years. You know, I was um, listening to an interview where you talked about how some of the Liverpool and uh, Everton players were some of your best friends mm-hmm. back then. And now it's just totally different. So I suppose in that aspect, you wanted them to play well because they were your friends. Gareth Southgate was at our wedding. Mm-hmm. The, the England manager is one of my closest friends in football. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, I, I want the England team to do well. I'm English, but I'm not xenophobic English. I feel far more strongly about the England national team in his hands than I did in Fabio Capello's hands, that's for sure. Um, and that that particular cup final, the 1986 FA Cup final, when the FA Cup final was still the biggest show in town, yeah. it was probably still the match that even then, I mean, okay, Champions League had arrived, it was probably the game that English footballers wanted to win more than any Absolutely. other, the FA Cup final. This was Everton versus Liverpool. Mm. And it was pretty much for the double because Liverpool had, had pipped Everton to the double the previous weekend. And it was as big a football match as somebody who's working on local radio on Merseyside as you can... It's the biggest assignment you can imagine. Um, and it was made a hundred times bigger that I knew everybody on the field. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, at the end of the night, it's quite a nice story. Um, I used to go to a, uh, don't worry about this, what's coming. I used to go to a nightclub in Birkenhead because that's where I lived or near Birkenhead. And um, the uh, the guy that ran it knew Peter Stringfellow and Stringfellow's was the hotspot in the whole, of the, the, the whole of Europe at the time. And Peter Stringfellow wanted the FA Cup in Stringfellow's that night. 
And and this guy thought I could arrange it. I knew people in both camps. And yeah. the, it basically, whichever team won was invited to Stringfellows. So I sorted with a representative from each team, both of whom were wide-eyed and think, great, free night in Stringfellows, you know, after because there was always a banquet with the wives and everything after the... Um, after the cup final, winners and losers in London. And then everybody came back home with, with or without the cup the next day. So this was going on from the banquet for the Liverpool players. And um, I made sure Craig Johnson, funnily enough, was my man. Yeah, 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 it'll be there. And I went to the Everton banquet. I, I actually went back to the Everton hotel once I'd sorted out, because I hadn't won the cup, uh, but some of my mates had lost the cup final. And I felt as if I wanted to be with them more than I wanted to be with the guys who were giddy on, on success. So I actually went to the Everton banquet that night um, and, uh, and got slowly drunk with my mates who got beaten in the final. <laughs> Do you think a strange thing perhaps has happened where you talk about the relationship you had with players in that era of your career, whereas now the, the, the players that are playing now will have heard your voice through their childhoods. And so they would already have a relationship to you before you've met them. Yeah, David and I don't know each other well, but we've been in the same place at the same time and shared the same experiences. And so, you know, when you do sit down together, you've already got something which, I mean, we're going to come on, no doubt, and talk about 98, 99, which was massive in my career and it was massive in your career. So, you know, if we ever tee it up somewhere and, and have uh, a round of golf together, we'll spend probably three and a half of those four hours talking about that year, that yeah. era, and, and just the stuff that we didn't know about each other. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the sharing of the experiences that you see from your side with the people who saw it from, from another side. But um, obviously... Um, as I said, my relationships with players were much stronger when I was the same age as those players. I'm now old enough to be the grandfather of the guys that are out there. I know a lot of managers and I know a lot of retired managers, but that the, the I would think the relationship between footballers today and the media is nothing like the relationship even that you had, David, in the you know, in the late 90s, early noughties with, with journalists and broadcasters. You'd know quite a lot of them, wouldn't you, personally? You would, yeah. But you'd have to tread carefully with them because a lot of them you just didn't trust. And I think that's massive. You know, when you get to know people on a personal level, the trust is there. And I don't think you can put a price on on trust. You know, if you say something in confidence, then that has to remain that. But a lot of times there's always a leak. Yeah. Always a leak. And Alec knew how to to work the media. Actually, you know, we talk about the way that that's done today through media offices and and agents and so on and stories that are are fed and briefings and stories that are paid for. But Alec did that instinctively on his own. He he knew how to work the media. And, of course, we knew that one mistake and that was it. Mm. You know, the omerta and you were gone. You, you, You didn't come back from... I had uh, there's a list of people in people and things in the book that just went overnight. You know, I mean, from uh, I mean, he admitted that Yap Stan was wrong. That was yeah. probably his one big mistake. But we're talking Steve Bruce, Brian Robson, Roy Keane, Victoria Beckham, the yeah. BBC. I mean, just gone. The, uh, you know, the, the, in one day and gone forever into the fiery inferno, yeah. never come back. Ruthless. And you must have known that as a player. Yeah, I mean, as soon as you step out of line, that's it. And depending on how, how severe it was, what you said or did, 
that's your United your career over at United. And when we, when we did the podcast with the manager the other week, he said nobody can be bigger than the manager. You know, people try to be bigger than the club and so on and so on. But if the players get slight slightly over you, then you you're on a downward spiral. And that's my Fergie chapter in the book. It's all about control. And of course, yeah. he was the manager, but he was also whatever you want to call it, chief operating officer, director of football, head of recruitment. Mm. He was all of those things in one position. And that is the only way that he could manage Manchester United. It had to be on those terms. And he could control all of those aspects because he was prepared to take the responsibility, which was a huge thing for one man to take on. He was always first at the well, the cliff and then yeah. Carrington, always last to leave. He gave so much of himself to managing that football club. How was your relationship with Sir Alex over the years? I, I know you did have a certain run-in with him. I think it was to do with the team. <laughs> it was 98-99 season as well, wasn't it? Yeah, I've had the two biggest rollickings of my life from him. Um, <laughs> one on I, the phone, though, which wasn't... One on the phone, which wasn't too bad. <laughs> one in the reception of a hotel in Barcelona, which was bad. Um, I, it was the proper hairdryer. I know now why it's called the hairdryer <laughs> because it is a physical experience, not just an audio experience. It is a physical experience. Um, how was my relationship with him? It was professional. He was wonderful to me and wonderful for me. And I did have his trust. I inherited his trust to a degree from my predecessor, the late great Brian Moore, with whom he had a trusting relationship and I think probably spoke highly of me. I was fortunate enough to work with Jason, um, one of his sons, professionally. I actually visited the house in Wilmslow as a guest of Jason's once and stayed overnight, yeah. you know, just as one of Jason's friends. So I guess that broke down a few barriers. And I would like to think, you know, the very fact that the, the, the commentary charts, which now we funny enough do prints of and, and, and publish and, uh, and, and make available and sell, he had the two Champions League finals of my research notes framed and hung in his office. Um, and I think there was a sort of a, a respect that mm. I cared as much about what I did as he cared about what he did. And I think that was why he was prepared at two o'clock on the day of a big Champions League game to s sit me and a couple of other confidants, you know, maybe Des Lynham and Gary Newborn down privately and say, look, this is what my team's going to be and this is what I'm going to try to do. And again, a little bit... You know, that sort of savvy, um, streetwise wisdom that he had, how to work the media. You know, that halftime interview he used to do, he wasn't paid for that. That was, and wasn't part of a contract or anything. He just knew the power of television. He knew that 10, 12, 15 million people were watching. And if he had that stage to talk to them directly rather than through a newspaper reporter, then he could reach them with the way and the nuances that he wanted to get across. And similarly, I think he felt that if he could brief a commentator that he trusted, not just not to tell anybody, but actually to use the information in a constructive way during the night uh, as to what he had in mind, what he was trying to do, that it, A, he was serving his purpose to, to communicate with the Manchester United public, but also he was actually protecting his own reputation uh, to a degree. And so it was a relationship that became personal 
because he trusted me and so I saw him with his guard down and I heard his wonderful stories about growing up in Glasgow and how he was the greatest centre forward that Rangers had, <laughs> which he wasn't. Um, uh, but at the same time, I knew, uh, just as David knew, that one mistake. You you told us that there were two occasions that you were on the receiving end of um, his, but you haven't explained what those occasions were or perhaps what you had done and then what he said. Well, there were both misunderstandings, mercifully. So... Um, when the red mist cleared, um, I've never had an apology. <laughs> I'm not holding my breath. <laughs> and if he was here now, we'd laugh about it because I don't think he did a lot of apologising. You just came back on board, you know. Yeah. There, was a, there was a period of silence passed and then you came back on board as if it had never happened. Um, very, very briefly, first one was um, a really awful League Cup tie at Halifax, two-legged, First round, it was probably the second round, but first round United came in. Halifax were 92nd in the Football League and United were just about to go back into Europe, funny enough, after the Heisel ban, just about to travel out to uh, to Hungary to play Pixie Munkas. Um, I commentated in the game for highlights. Um, it was an awful performance. Jim Layton, who was under a bit of pressure, threw one in. Um, it was 1-1 for a spell and, and United scored twice in the last couple of minutes and it was all okay. And in the post-match interviews... Um, I came down from the, the crow's nest, which was the gantry, and the floor manager said, Fergie's not doing it. I said, OK. But Neil Webb, who scored a goal, was doing it. And Jim McCallion was the Halifax manager. So they were going to be my two post-match interviews, standing on a touchline. Unbeknown to me, my boss, who was Paul Doherty, a very famous uh, television producer, particularly in this part of the world of Granada television, had somehow managed to contact his friend, Sir Alec Ferguson, Alec Ferguson as he was then, uh, somehow through the club office, because the following weekend, United were playing Forest in a game which was network on ITV in what was then the first division, now the Premier League, just to do two questions previewing that game. And that was all. You know what's coming, don't you? Um, to my surprise, after we've done Webby and, and Jim McCallion, suddenly Fergie's striding out onto the touchline to do the interview about the two questions yeah. that I was going to ask him about Nottingham Forest. I didn't get that message. <laughs> so he stands there and he had this terrible, uh, he probably still got it, this nervous cough, which he kind of was always bad news for anybody. Well, then when he was coughing, you always knew that yeah. he was in a bad mood. So he's irritated and the sound, sound guy's asking, get a level please, Alex. <laughs> One, <laughs> two, <laughs> you know, here we go. Um, so, uh, I'm sort of looking down at my feet. So away we go. Well, a good result in the end, but what do you think of the performance? <laughs> yeah, but you're always very big on performance, you know, and I, I'm sure you'll be fine. And, and suddenly he's poking me in the chest and I, I can say this kind of says, you f***ing chancer. And he turns around and he's gone. <laughs> and as he goes, the floor manager comes out and sees Fergie going the other way. He says, Two questions about Forrest. You got the message? No. Oh, no. <laughs> so Fergie had come out to do the interview about the game coming and I'd asked him about the game just gone. So I phoned him the next morning thinking everything would be fine. I, I knew I had his number uh, on the training ground, a uh, direct number, and sure enough, he answered the phone. And I'm thinking, hey, <laughs> you know, I'm so, oh, just a misunderstanding. <laughs> phone. You know, there's people sort of coming from... Eight houses away to see what the, see what the disturbance was. They could hear it on the phone. So that was the first one. So that took a bit of getting over. And the second one, very very briefly, was um, 
Yeah, the um, the game at the New Camp in the group stage mm-hmm. in 98-99. And Sir Alex's great confidant in the media was a great writer, Hugh McIlvanny, sadly not with us anymore. And I'd read Hugh's preview of the game in the Sunday Times, and he had hinted that Wes Brown might play ahead of Phil Neville. Gary was playing centre-back at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, that Wes Brown may play ahead of Phil Neville at right back because, to deal with the physicality of Rivaldo, who played on the yeah. left-hand side for Barcelona. So jump forward two days to um, Catalonia. I get into the t- hotel lift the night before the game. Neville Neville, the late Neville Neville, the father of, gets into the lift with me, just the two of us. And in the, sh- the space of 12 floors, Neville says to me, Phil doesn't think he's playing tomorrow. Uh, and I said, trying to help. <laughs> well, if he doesn't play Neville, it'll be only because they're a bit concerned about Rivaldo and his yeah. strength and height. And that, that was all it would be. It'd be no reflection on him at all. Neville phones Phil in his hotel. Yeah, you're right, you're not playing. Clive Tilsley says you're not playing. Phil tells Gary. Gary goes to the manager at breakfast next morning and says, how come Clive Tilsley knows the team and we don't? I go innocently again for my uh, briefing at the uh, hotel on the beautiful harbour there in Barcelona at lunchtime on the day of the game and walk straight into uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> that hairdryer and he just bored me out for about 15 seconds and uh, I got back in the taxi and went back to my hotel wow but I was innocent <laughs> oh, boss, boss, are you listening? <laughs> I was innocent. He <laughs> does watch them. Yes, commentary charts. Let's talk about those. Maisie, do you have one? I do. So there, there, Where did this idea come about, Clive, to start selling this? Well, um, it, it, again, as, as with a lot of things, it came out of lockdown. Um, the first big lockdown, I just on, for my Instagram photos did a daily quiz where I covered up a name on the research notes that I write out slavishly for every game and then file away. And, and it, it um, just, you know, who's the, who's, the, who's the name that's missing from this famous match? And um, a friend of mine, Chris Stark, uh, who is a Radio 1 DJ, mm. Scott Mills and um, big Watford fan, he saw the Watford one. And he said, can I have that chart? And I said, yeah, of course you can. He said, how much do you want for it? And I said, well, you can have it. You're a mate. I'll just take a photocopy of it. Reference said, no, no, you should be selling these. So in May last year, yeah, so cool. we got a printer friend of mine to print up, I think, 10, 12 copies of four of the best known games that I've done. And um, my wife ordered a dozen frames from Amazon. And um, I think about 35,000 later, um, We've got a business. Wow. <laughs> just a lovely memento. I spent yesterday, funny enough, um, with the guys from Classic Football Shirts at their um, just extraordinary warehouse HQ, just on the way out to Hyde. And, yeah, football memorabilia is – I'm not a great collector, really, but it's just memories. These, the, You know, everything that we talk about, everything we talk about with Maisie and the guys that, that come on here – there's something we shared together, you know, whether you were yeah. out there in the middle playing or whether you were just a kid who was allowed to stay up a little bit later because the game went into extra time or whatever. They are, they're why we love football. They're, you know, that it's it's the moments, the games, the seasons, the players that create those memories that are, that give me a, a living. And um, I suppose that these are a, a special memento of, 
huge day, days and nights in people's lives. And they're an interesting momentum because if you look at the chart, they are my research notes that I have in front of me at kickoff. So they don't actually tell you what happened. So in the, the 99 final, Solskjaer and Sheringham are just two names amongst the substitutes at the bottom of the page with David. There's no indication that these two guys were going to come on and impact on the game in the way that they did. But as you hang that in your office or your man-woman cave or downstairs loo or wherever you hang it, then you add your story. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody says, what's this? Oh, well, I, I was in the new camp or I watched it at home or I switched off the TV at halftime or whatever. You know, the, the story that you, that you lend to, to the piece, the, the piece of memorabilia is in many ways what I think makes them a little bit different. I think looking at it as well, you can sense the anticipation of what's going to happen in the next hour and a half or two hours of football. We can now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we had no idea at the time. And you can hear the we? commentary, of course, as you look at that piece of artwork. Um, obviously, we have to talk about that night. At that season, we've talked about with a lot of players. Were you involved uh, in commentary for most of the group games? I did every game. Every stage, yeah. Yeah, ITV had the sole rights to... Champions League back then so um, yeah I, I travelled to and commentated on every single game and it was a dramatic route to the final and again instantly in the book when I when I talk about that and it seems strange to bracket it with a Liverpool achievement It'd take a bit of getting used to for a lot of people but it was very similar to 2005 because the I'm not a religious person I don't really believe in in fate or destiny I think you you know, I think that if you get a, an even chance in life, then you kind of make your own fate, your own destiny. I'm sure, you know, what David talked about a hard work that footballers have got to do in order to be achievers. I believe in all of that. You know, I believe you, you work your way into that situation. And the pivotal goal that night is not something that anybody dreamt up. It's the best set piece taker in the world, David Beckham, taking a corner, and finding the head of probably the best near post header of a ball in the world at that time, Teddy Sheringham, and maybe the best substitute in the world, certainly in terms of the instinctive ability to shift your body, to to deal with a ball coming to you quickly at a difficult height and poke it into the only corner of the net where it will go in. So they are three pieces of extraordinary skill. It's not just something that was dreamt up by a Hollywood movie director. This, Okay, it came very, very late, but it, it, it was actually a, a, most, a most beautiful set piece. So in actual fact, this whole element of name on the trophy, which is what I kind of said after the goal, that this, is, this has been written in the stars, this is meant to be Schmeichel's save from Bergkamp, you know, Roy's goal in Turin, and then the yellow card, which takes him out of the final. All of this, even going behind in the final title game, um, actually... It isn't that. It, 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 that I tried to give it that sense of that was how I read the runes at the time that we should have seen this coming two, three months ago because it was just meant to be. Um, in actual fact, that that's, that's just the theatrical dressing, which, if you like, the commentator gives to the game. Football bloody hell. Don't ask me to explain it. It's happened. But actually, when you look back, I think, and analyse it, it happened because that was an extraordinary football team, extraordinary individuals in a, in a, in a wonderful um, c- 
compatibility. It's a, it, it, I mean, the one thing about the team that night was that it was unbalanced. It was the most balanced football team I think mm. I've ever seen. But because of Roy's absence, yeah. it became unbalanced. Ryan was playing on the on the right hand side. Yeah. Um, Bex was playing in, in the centre. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't really until Ryan went back on the left late in the game, wasn't it, that started that changing, actually started yeah. to play yeah. well. You know, so you can analyse the game as a football match. Mm. Weirdly, do you know when you're in your room in your hotel? Do you make up these sayings, or does it just? No, I know you don't yeah. make them up, but you know, like I, th- I think the part of your prep is facts and figures, and I think part of your prep and and my mentor. If you read the book, you, you read a lot about Reg Guttridge, the late Reg Guttridge, yeah. boxing commentator, who who was my mentor. I didn't ask him to be. Um, it was pretty tough love at times, but he took me under his wing and he taught me ninety nine percent of what I know about commentary. And um, he was a journalist, and he said that you've got. To, You've got to be editorially strong. You, you've got to be able, uh, if possible, to come up with words that will appear in the the intro of your favourite writer the next morning or even the headline the next morning. You've got to be able to interpret what you're seeing from an editorial news point of view. You've got to tell people why this... They know they can see it happening, so you've got to tell them what's significant about it, you know, what, why it matters, whether why they'll remember this this game, this moment for forever and a day. And so part of your editorial preparation is not actually to write things out, but to think what this would mean for Manchester United. Okay, firstly, to, to win a treble, you have to have the facts about the Ajax team that's done this and the Bayern team. That, Bayern could have done it themselves that yeah. night. Um, so you have to have that statistical background to put it into some context of how extraordinary this is. But you've also got to look at some bigger picture about Manchester United and the European Cup and Busby and the anniversary on the night and Fergie and 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 then the backdrop of England versus Germany, which was, I mean, very, very relevant then. We just weren't used to seeing the, the great German teams beaten, particularly the national teams, never beaten in that kind of a way. So you've almost got to prepare yourself for what a Manchester United victory would mean, what a Manchester United defeat would mean. And so that's part of your preparation, not to write out specific words or phrases, but to try to put it into the context. And again, this whole idea about this, this sense of destiny and fate, which seemed to run through the season. And, I, and that must have been quite empowering for you guys, really, that, you know, what what do you... We always say, oh, you learn from those moments. You learn from... You know, what do you learn from staring defeat in the face in an FA Cup semi-final where Dennis Bergkamp's putting the ball on the spot and you're going out mm. and you don't. You don't go out. You dodge the bullet. What, yeah. what do you get from that? A great belief. A great belief that that's fate. That's fate. We were destined, as you say... Keen against that half scoring, you know, and Colin Yorkie scoring in, in Turin. Going 1 0 behind against Spurs at Old Trafford. Coley scoring just coming on after after half time. Those moments, and then obviously Ollie at the 93rd minute, whatever it was. Because you should have won the title of Blackburn, really, shouldn't you? Yeah. And and uh, can they score? They always score. Uh, is is totally wrong. Do you know, do you know they what? didn't score ten days ago at Ewood <laughs> yeah. Park. You know, I mean, so. Well, that but that's that saying what you've just said there. They always score. Me driving to to the hotel today, and I spoke to two three people. All United fans, 
what are you doing today? Clive Tilda's podcast. They always score. And and that's the first thing I and that when I watch United now and I watch that specific moment on MUTV or on Sky or whatever it's on, those words yeah. are no. like I know yeah. where they came from, funny enough. I was driving to... And that's, that's when I said to you, when you're in the hotel... Well, I was driving up to Wembley uh, on the Friday of the FA Cup final. I stayed in the hotel that night because uh, FA Cup finals in 1999 came on air about six o'clock in the morning or something stupid. We were on air all day. So we had to be sort of at Wembley at 10. So yeah. I, I stayed in the hotel overnight. And Mark Lawrenson was on... I don't know if it was Radio 2 or Radio 5, but looking forward to the weekend's football. Manchester United versus Newcastle United. Almost a forgotten game yeah. in the in the FA Cup final. And Mark actually said, um, well, one thing's for certain, it won't be Manchester United nil. Um, and he, 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 so that was his sort of first thoughts on the FA Cup final that was coming up. And I suppose, I mean, I didn't write it down or anything, but I think probably in the back of my mind... But those words are, are so significant to that. Yeah, the previous that, five minutes you know, have been your best five minutes of the night. Up, but, you you know, know. It was the first time United had looked like scoring yeah. all night. I mean, okay, they hit the woodwork twice, yeah. but 80th and 83rd minute. Um, but w- weirdly, the substitutions did have a little bit of an... Oli nearly scored with his very first touch, funnily yeah, enough. Yeah, he did. And, um, and there were a couple of other little skirmishes. And... You, can you know, Mateus had come off, basically washed his hands to go and get the trophy, the one trophy he'd never lifted. Basler, who'd scored the only goal up to that point, came off sort of uh, conducting the crowd. And it just didn't, you don't, it's something about, no. you don't, that's not right. You don't do that. Nobody does that. I, mean, I remember don't him do that. in the game, waving yeah. to the fans, kissing yeah. his badge, and I thought, you arrogant. Yeah, yeah. Football, football is a well. Football That's usually, gets, thing, and I usually thought, gets people like just that. Just give us one chance. Yeah, give us one chance, and we had two chances and scored them both. And you know, Schmeichel came forward, which just caused confusion. But again, talking about the technical side of the the, the winning goal, Terry Venables, who I, the company I always enjoyed, was in our studio that night, and he analysed the equalising goal. And, and when you watch it again, just think about this. Because football is a simple game. Teddy Sheringham's body shape. The, the corner gets half cleared. Mm-hmm. Schmeichel's causing mayhem. Giggsy has a poke at it. Shank mishits it. Teddy Sheringham is standing side on when the ball comes to him. And Terry Venables argued that any other striker in the world would have turned to face Ryan Giggs. And as the ball came towards him, he would have had his back to goal. So he would have not been able to get in a goal attempt. He would have only been able to try to tee up somebody because he's now facing the wrong yeah. way. But Teddy wasn't any other striker. Teddy was always side on. And so even though Teddy didn't actually catch no. it particularly well, he really was just helping it on his way, just wafting it into the goal. But his body shape and his position that night was that which very few strikers in the world would have taken up. And again, why did Manchester United score? Because Teddy Sheringham was that man at that moment. And um, they, they, they are exceptional players. You played yeah. with, you know, not, not spare your blushes, because you're not a great player. Great's an overused word in mm-hmm. sport. And you could argue who the great players were in that team. The goalkeeper is was... Yeah arguably the best individual player in that team. He was the best goalkeeper in the world. In the world. Yeah. You could 
you could make an argument for Kino Elbex to be among the best midfield players in the world, but they weren't quite Zidane, were they? No. Schmeichs was the best goalkeeper in the world. Mm-hmm. And then again, you can make arguments for Giggs, and, but, but it's actually the way it all came to... It's the way that Cole and York played together that actually made them special. And, and Ollie's role was just what he did. And, and in a way, it plagued his career because he was the best substitute in the world. And, but he, he's talked about it since he watched the game. That's, yeah. that's why when he came on, he knew what was happening in the game. These things don't happen by accident by or chance, by fate. No. no. Amazing, isn't it, really? You can, you, you can look back on that two minutes of football and actually now start to dissect, yeah, the winning goal was just the slickest set piece you'll ever see. Mm. Just the perfect... It, I mean, Kufour, could, he can cry all he likes, but you can't defend it. No. How do you stop that goal? You've got to somehow stop Teddy getting to it. Yeah, mate, how do you stop that goal? I never thought about it. <laughs> I don't think you can. The delivery, is, as Clive just said there, inch perfect. Mm-hmm. Teddy flicks your arm and... It's a great finish. It's a wonderful if you, if finish. You, if, yeah, if you wanted anybody else or anybody on that team to be in that position, it would have been Ollie. You know, roles reverse, probably not Teddy, not Coley, not Yorkie. It's waist height. They're, they've got two on the line, have they? Yeah. Either side of the goal, but yeah, I yeah. can't remember. But it, when you look at it, there's, there's actually a still of where it's gone. It's gone up into the roof of the net. Mm. And, and he has somehow angled his body to turn it into the roof of the net. And if that's the only goal he's ever scored in his life, you know, if he's some big dopey centre-back like Maisie, just come forward and got like Harry Maguire scored in that game we saw last night. Never, ever going to happen again, that, by the way. Ollie did that the week before and the week after and again and the following season. That's how Ollie scored goals. We said you got some stick in these podcasts, didn't we, Maisie? <laughs> Maisie has scored a couple of goals, though, which you have commentated on. Oh, no. We don't count our own goals, do we? <laughs> uh, what we all remember about David May are the celebrations after the final. I get quite embarrassed by that now, looking back. Because I think, oh my God, what was I doing? I think he must have scored both of the goals. It was your in dad, my, my wasn't it? Did. Your dad told you to celebrate. You played a big part in the running. I remember yeah. that. Yeah. Wait, you came into the team, did somebody... Leeds. Leeds away. Uh, yep, struggling with his Achilles. And... Um... And Ronnie was always struggling, wasn't he? Ronnie, yeah, the ice man, yeah. Yeah, he didn't get his name for ring. anything else. <laughs> Covered it with ice every training session. <laughs> but just be part of that, it's like, it's the best thing ever. Well, you were part of it. How did you yeah. celebrate, Clive? Oh, no, you won't have celebrated because well, you weren't a fan. It's an interesting, <laughs> it's an interesting question. In so much the, our hotel was walking distance to the new camp, not kind of next to it, but... A so the distance hour, we are now? A half-hour walk back to, to the hotel. And obviously, it was after the game, it was the best way to go back. And obviously, we were going to have a few... Uh, Riocas after the match um, because we had a big team of people who went out together and it was great to be a part really really special to be that was my special team that I was if you like a peripheral member of to to sit down after a football match and just listen to you know uh, Terry Venables Ron Atkinson more latterly you know uh, Keno and Martin O'Neill and all the great raconteurs that I've sort of work with is really really I'm I'm sort of you know David at the feet of the elders sort of wide eye but I was aware that night that I'd um you know been very fulsome in my praise for the achievement and I was also aware that we were now in an era where every City fan every Liverpool fan every Leeds fan every West Ham fan were probably throwing stuff at the TV mm-hmm. 
Um, and when I got back to the hotel, they had Sky News in the, in the hotel. And I turned it on before I went down to join the rest for a drink. And it was almost as if England had won the World Cup. There, there was almost, um, and maybe I'm wrong, but I sensed that that night, even the, the most hardened blue, even the most hardened scouser thought, go on then, enjoy it. You deserve it. You've done it your way. Um, we'll give you dog's abuse when you come to our place yeah. in, in August, September. But fair play to you. You know, you've done it. And we'd never seen the Germans beaten quite like that. I think some of the most vivid images are of their fans at the final whistle. It was almost like they'd witnessed some terrible human disaster. And and seeing Mateus and seeing Basler yeah. in defeat, seeing Kufour absolutely inconsolable, they just didn't expect to lose, certainly not from the position that they were in. And so I actually think it was almost like a one-off victory that you could celebrate and, and celebrate openly, even in tribal football. Mm-hmm. Clive, we've got a great opportunity here because, of course, Maisie does co-coms from UTV. Uh, I know there's a bit in your book about the what rules about Paddy? you have. Paddy does that, doesn't he? <laughs> no, he's moved on now. Yeah. 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 About, um, about uh, rules for co-commentators and how you divide the pitch and, and how you split what you talk about. Uh, maybe could you give Maisie a lesson? No. Have you heard Maisie's no, co-commentary no, firstly? No, but uh, the, what, what is the role of the co The only thing that you have to think about, David, is what is the role of the co-commentator? And it, it goes back to a little uh, something that we were talking about earlier, the man in the arena speech, the Roosevelt speech. You have been there. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, rather as with footballers and management, some of the greatest footballers have, have no idea how to how they did it. Yeah. So what chance have they got of telling anybody else? There's a lovely story in the book about a kickoff feature that we did where we got Frank Worthington down to Bolton to do a little bit of work with uh, Tony Phyllis Kirk and David Reeves. I think they mm-hmm. were two young strikers yeah, yeah. who were doing well down the leagues for Bolton. And the idea was for Frank to pass on his knowledge. And we started filming. And the first thing we did was Frank said, right, knock a ball into me. And he chested it down, swiveled and volleyed it into the top corner and said to them, right, you do that. <laughs> and they sort of, no, no, Frank, you need to explain how you do it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, knock another ball in and he chested it down and volleyed it into the other corner. You do it like that. He had no idea no. how he did it. And But if you are an ex-player... And it doesn't matter what level, really. As long as you've had to win football matches for a living, then you are a step ahead of 99.9% of us. And we should be open-mouthed and ready to hear what knowledge you can impart about the hows and whys. Mm. You don't need to come equipped with stats and all that kind of stuff. That's our job. We're the guys who shout the names out, but we're the guys who haven't been down there. Your job is to come back from there and come and sit next to me and tell us how it's done, how football matches are won and lost. And that is it. That's that's all you have to do. I'll, I'll take that on board. I do get a little bit carried away. It goes away. a little bit more excitable. Yeah, I, I do actually scream about yeah. some of the goals and stuff like that, but I do get emotionally tired that's cool. in it. That's fine. That's your, I, I'm doing some work for Rangers Television at the moment. My audience, another thing that Reg Guttridge taught me, identify your audience and commentate to them. The, the audience for... England World Cup semi-final on ITV was 28 million. The audience for a Europa League game, five o'clock kickoff between two mainland European teams on BT Sport will probably be under 100,000. So you're now talking 100,000 hard nuts. You don't have to explain... 
VAR or, yeah. or anything to them. The, there is an argument for explaining the offside law at some stage during that World Cup semi-final because your Uncle Joe and Auntie Elsie, who only watch two football matches a year, are watching that particular match. Mm-hmm. So you've got to welcome them in. So you've got to think about who your audience is and commentate to them. On MUTV, you're not going to get too many City or Liverpool fans no, tuning in. So, so go with it. That's fine. <laughs> Cheers, Clive. But you you've go. still got to be objective. Yeah, of course. You, I mean, you've still got to call I'm a bad Manchester United yeah, yeah, pass, yeah. a bad Manchester United yeah, pass. Exactly. But you do it with some sympathy and empathy for the guys that are doing it. Yeah. That's what Paddy didn't do, <laughs> arguably. Paddy played like that. I saw Paddy play. Um, Paddy's talk- suspended, by the way. You know that. Do you know the... You know he got sent off in his final game? Yep, we so talked that, about that in the podcast So that if he gets selected, he can't play. <laughs> um, we've talked about arguably the highest moment, uh, well, mm. definitely of Maisie's career, arguably of your career, at uh, the 99 final. What about the lows then? Obviously, you've been involved in some very difficult moments in football. Heisel, for example. Uh, how does that change you as a person? Oh, well, I, I mean, I'd never seen a dead body in my life um, before that night in the Heisel Stadium. And at one stage, I was counting them, piled one on top of another, and um, find it difficult to talk about even now. Um, uh, I wasn't at Hillsborough. I was involved on Merseyside in local radio for over 10 years. And, um, you know, that was my home. I know two people who, I knew two people who didn't come back from Hillsborough. So I was heavily involved in the aftermath of that. Um, and they are football events and football related and we should never forget them any more than, you know, we should forget Bradford or the air crash or, uh, or any of those true tragedies. Um, and by the way, I never ever refer to a goalkeeping error as a tragedy or a disaster because people die in tragedies and disasters. And I've been at one of them. Um, uh, so, um, it's taught me that, um, but that, they're their life, and they are different from the downs that you experience with football people over results, over the outcome of football matches, which are not life and death. They're really, really not. Um, but they feel pretty bad at the time. And, and when, um, you know, Roy Hodgson is a good friend, and when you commentate on an England-Iceland, at, again, to an audience of over 20 million people, and for some reason, England can't beat Iceland. And for some reason, really, really good technical players are playing like me um, and are playing frightened. Um, then, and you know his, his job's on the line. And actually, the editor comes on in your ears, unbeknown to you, and says, you've got to say this, you know, going into the final minute. That, that, they're the difficult ones, really. I, I do think... I, I never try to divorce myself from any cu- other kind of the media. We're all together um, and we're all responsible for a lot of the hype that separates, s- surrounds the game, whether it's written media or television media or broadcast media or, or, or whatever. And we, what David and I have got and what you guys are getting through meeting the people is a little bit of insight into um, how much of themselves they give as professional football people. And, and therefore how undeserving they are of some of the vitriol and character assassinations that are bestowed upon them. Yeah, yeah, uh, Steve Bruce was mm-hmm. sacked quite recently, a good friend, a good friend of yours, and actually suffered a little bit in, in the later years from, from outsiders saying, oh, he's got loads of friends in the media. He's got loads of friends in the media because he's a great guy yeah. who you can really trust and like. And more than that, we know how much of himself he's giving to try to make his boyhood club, Newcastle United, 
successful. Doesn't have to do it. You know, he's not a poor man. Doesn't have to be there. But he's doing it because he really wants to and he feels as if he can do. Now, that doesn't stop David Arai saying, that's a terrible Newcastle performance. I think he might have picked the wrong team. We will do that. What we won't do is say that Steve Bruce is useless and not up to it and it was a ridiculous appointment and he's not even trying or start to make comments about his size or the colour of his skin or... I mean, what? Just leave it out. We know this guy. You know, that's that's the insight that we get and that's when your professional judgment is challenged, really. When, when you do have insight, personal insight... And you're trying to gauge in in your own mind whether you're being still being objective or whether you just want this guy or this woman to succeed in whatever it is that she's she's doing, and that's that's they're the difficult editorial calls. So apart from the human disasters, um, the most difficult elements in football really are how do you console a friend who's just lost, and 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 you've yeah. been there, yeah. There's nothing, when you've lost you a big football match, you there's nothing you want anybody to say to you, really, is there? No, no. Helen, what do you say to Johnny? <laughs> nothing. <laughs> <laughs> what time are you taking the kids to school? No. <laughs> there's nothing you want no, you to say, they, no. <laughs> time, But he appreciates that. And, and as, a, as a professional, you don't want to wear it. You don't want to wear... Never mind. No. Yeah. <laughs> are you joking? No. I'm the same. I've, I've even come down from commentaries which I didn't think were very good and you, we kind of get around the TV vans we're sort of waiting for the studio to finish so we can get in a taxi and go back to the hotel and I've come down and some guy said great tonight mate you joking I'm going to start picking an argument I was terrible oh okay we're just trying to be nice yeah well yeah yeah we care we care we That's have all. asked a few former players if they were to relive one match in their career what would it be for you, obviously, we all want you to say the '99 Champions League final, but is that the right answer? It was the most important match of my career mm-hmm. uh, because it was my first season in succession of Brian Moore, uh, who retired after the '98 World Cup final. And I mean, if I if I'd got that moment wrong, there were twenty odd million watching that night. Um, they'd have found somebody else. I was a rookie, really. They, you know, they went with me. Um, but the Champions League obviously was becoming bigger. And remember, it's our first Champions League, our England's first Champions League victory for 15 years, something like that. Um, so, you know, that was starting to happen again and was clearly going to be a big contract for ITV going forward. I think we may even have had a bit of FA Cup. Well, we did because I commentated on the FA Cup final. So if I hadn't been able to deal with those big moments to their satisfaction, they'd have probably gone and got John Motson. I wouldn't be sitting here now. <laughs> So, yeah, it, it was the most important match of my career. Mm-hmm. What great characters have you come across? <laughs> um, if I could go back and spend time with anybody again, it would be Bill Shankly, mm-hmm. uh, which might have had something to do with my age and when I met him. You know, I think we are a bit more kind of wide-eyed in uh, our 20s than we are in our uh, 120s. Um, but he was, you're talking about, Charisma. I, I didn't spend a lot of time around Busby, but he was a different kind of a man, a quieter mm-hmm. man. You know, Shankly was the only man in the room when he was there. Uh, and um, he had a, 
a kind of Presbyterian zeal. If he'd been a politician, he would have won landslide victory after you would you would do anything for Bill Shankly, anything at all. And not out of fear. I mean, I think Fergie used the fear thing quite well. Mm-hmm. I mean, he could inspire you and he, he I'm, I'm sure he could put an arm around you from time to time. But most of it was demanding to be at the same level of commitment and intensity. He give as much to this football club as I'm giving to yeah. it, it will be okay. I don't think I think Bill was um, he was a simpler man in many ways, but he, his stories and the way he told them, many of them quite fanciful, um, they were just wonderful to be around. My first manager, if you like, the first job that I had regularly, the first team that I covered regularly were in Brian Clough's um, management. Um, he was class. I, oh, boy, you listen to it again. I think that's probably quite a good measure of, uh, and you, you could probably name 10 people too, David, that say... When they're in the room, they're the only person yeah. in the room. Something about them. Mm-hmm. They're, they're the special ones. Clive, we could listen to you all day. You can't. An encyclopedia of stories. That's, 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 that's what I'm getting at, but we can't. So I have to say thank you very much for sharing your stories with us. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to do it too. It's been fun to do. Guys, that was a very soothing episode to listen to. That was good. Because was, of Clive's voice. Did yeah, you enjoy it, Sam? I did. There were moments where he was, we were talking about 99 and the treble and it was sort of almost spine tingling to, to be in those moments and talk about those moments and, and it be his voice, the person who described all that to us first time round. I thought it was great. Yeah, I loved it. Took the mickey out of you a bit, didn't he? That's what me and Clive have. Yeah? Yeah. Love and hate relationship. He gave you his card. I love him and he hates me. (laughs) (laughs) He gave you his business card afterwards. Yes, we're going to go and uh, have a few rounds of golf somewhere. If you're wondering when I say business card, I mean an actual physical business card, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. You don't often get them now. No, no. No. Pretty good. Maisie, he talked a little bit about how the relationship between players has changed with the media over the years. Yeah. What was your relationship like with members of the media, for example, commentators back then in 99 or even before? I I thought there was always a respect thing that you enjoyed I don't think I, I really don't think nowadays in today's football you would ever have that relationship where you can go over and actually speak to a, a commentator or or any journalist or anything like that without being misconstrued in, in any sort of way how bizarre is it that he grew up on the Stratford end watching the Holy yeah. Trinity and then at some point just went eh, whatever United sure I don't get it I find that quite hard to believe that doesn't actually have a team that he follows now but then I suppose it's so hard You, but if you I mean the alarm's back in the hotel but I think everything's fine if you if you love football and then you grew up with a football club and your dad's there going this is a team and you're watching Bobby Cholton and Dennis Law and George Best I don't understand how that as someone who then works in football so you continue to love football that goes away I don't get it did you ever want to be a commentator Sam? Um, do you know what probably when I was younger like when I was a teenager there are probably points where I thought or even said oh I'd like to be a commentator because you were never going to be a footballer I was going to ignore that it was possible in theory because it wasn't I just loved football and it was a way to be involved I guess so there you go everybody buy Clive's book which is called not for me Clive there you go then Clive Tilsley's book is available to read and probably an audio version too which would be very nice yeah but obviously listen to the podcast first yeah listen to our pod Um, uh, that's it for this week um Thank you very much for listening. As always, if you uh, want to get in touch with us, you can. Our email address is in the show notes. It's unitedpodcast.mainnight.co.uk and we'll see you next time. I'd like to know if there's anybody out there who would like, other than footballers, like Clive, who would think it'd be a good podcast, 
give us a call. Give us a shout. Give us a an email, a text, or a tweet. I don't know, a tweet. At Sam Homewood or Helen Evans. Hell's bells. Six. Six. Hell's bells. Or if you message David May, you get a free beer machine. Bye. See you later. Bye.